Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors, a podcast in which I continue a conversation begun by children's television icon Fred Rogers in my PBS documentary, Mr. Rogers and Me. Each week, I talk with friends and neighbors about how they're endeavoring towards depth and simplicity, despite an often shallow and complex world. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and today, Senator Sarah McBride. One of the unexpected upsides of living in Wilmington, Delaware, is its population. There are as many humans in the entire state as there are in just Midtown, the Upper East, and West Sides of Manhattan combined. There were half as many apartment units in my building on 71st Street as there are houses in my entire neighborhood here. And ends up this neighborhood is kind of star-studded. President Biden lives just over the hill. Senator Chris Coons lives right across the street. And I see Mayor Mike Persicki walking in nearby Rockford Park nearly every day. But the neighbor I was most excited to meet and have been most grateful to share meaningful time with is Delaware State Senator Sarah McBride. Sarah was born and raised here in the Highlands neighborhood, just two blocks from our brick colonial. She attended American University where she made national headlines when At the end of her term as student body president, she came out publicly as transgender in the student paper. Sarah interned in the White House before returning to Delaware to help pass a landmark non-discrimination law. She authored the deeply moving and inspiring 2018 memoir, Tomorrow Will Be Different, and in 2020 became the first openly transgender state senator in the history of the United States. Sarah is also one of the judges at the neighborhood's Halloween parade, where, it should be mentioned, she awarded the Wagners the most creative family trophy. And she's the highlight of every Highlands Community Association annual meeting. When Sarah and I spoke just a few days into the new year, she was marshalling forces behind her priority bill, SB1, which will provide paid leave to working families. Our episode picks up on a conversation we began off mic about one well-known national interviewer's fixation with her coming out story. I think a lot of us live out of balance with our sort of integrity. And the more work I do to make sense of my life at 50, the more it really comes down to integrity. How whole am I? How in touch am I with my true self? The reality is is obviously that is a pivotal moment in my life and in the life of every trans person. But I think it's unintentionally reductive in the sense that so much of that self-discovery, so many of our experiences, even related to our trans identities, happen after that point. It's a critical inflection point. It's a critical moment. There are a lot of lessons learned and it's worth talking about. But I think sometimes we unintentionally leave out equally, if not more profound parts of a person's journey when it focuses in on one single moment. Our minds are trained to that. Movies and television train us to to focus in on that one point of maximum drama. But I think sometimes if you delve into a person's story more broadly, you realize that it might actually be the moments that you don't know about that are the moments of of most profound insight. It was a start line for you. And yes, it was a marker, but so much of the race is left. You had the courage to step up and say, I'm going to walk across this start line in a new way, really. 
in some ways it's the start line. Mm. In some ways it's the end of the first leg. Yeah. And that was actually something that I had to really internalize and understand as I was coming out, particularly to my parents. I had to really internalize that it wasn't a starting point for me, mm-hmm. but that moment was a starting point for them. Yeah. Uh, and I had had 21 years to grapple with, come to terms with, overcome shame, process all of these feelings. They are just experiencing them for the first time right. with total surprise in that moment. And so what is one person's starting point is another person's midpoint or even endpoint. So we live in one of the most bucolic, progressive and prosperous neighborhoods in Delaware, if not the beautiful place called the Highlands in the Northwest corner here. How did growing up in the community shape you? It's truly amazing for me to now have the opportunity, flash forward 30 years, to represent the community that I was born and raised in. And I think in many ways, my childhood in the 90s was idyllic. You know, it was the type of environment where after school every day, all of the kids in the neighborhood got together to play capture the flag or flag or ghost in the graveyard. Um, It was a really close knit community among the adults and among the the young people, all of whom went to different schools. Um, So it wasn't like we were bringing friendships from school back home. It was we were friends despite the fact that we weren't spending each day together at at school. It was an environment that taught me a lot about community, Mm -hmm. about neighborly love and neighborly care. I think we all tried to look out for one another. I think the parents looked out for other families' kids and the kids looked out for one another. And so it was a, a, a really, I think, wonderful environment to grow up in. I think, though, So many of my lessons in my life from that early age aren't just a byproduct of the experiences I had in this community, this this Highlands community, but also how those experiences contrasted with so many other environments and so many other communities. And I think for me, one of the starkest memories I have as a kid, I went to elementary school starting in kindergarten at a small Montessori school over on the east side of Wilmington on Pine Street in Wilmington in an environment where unfortunately there is significant poverty, um, where it was not uncommon for gunshots to be heard during the course Mm. of the school day. And I think for me, the drive from the Highlands to the east side of Wilmington every single day, twice a day, highlighted how lucky I was. And I think in particular highlighted for me the racial disparities. Yeah that exist in our world. And when I look out at the world and see inequities that exist, to some degree, so much of that comes back to just the visceral experience of driving across the city of Wilmington and seeing the divide in prosperity and how much that divide in prosperity aligned with with race. I'm a runner and a bike rider like everyone else around here. And the first time I went down the Brandywine and took a right, and, you know, went towards the Market Street Bridge and so forth. And it just stops, right? Like, in essence, the trees stop, the park stop, the stores stop. And I just, I had never experienced it so viscerally. Because in New York City, where I've lived for most of my life, you get this sense, uh, everybody's mixed up and you just don't see it. So it just wasn't like you could see a red line, the Market mm-hmm. Street Bridge, if I have my geography right, where it just changed. It really is visceral. And I don't think that's unusual to Wilmington is what I came to sort of outside of my little New York bubble discover. 
Wilmington as a medium-sized city, the, the divides that exist in other larger cities certainly exist here. It's just particularly stark given how small we are geographically, but we also look at things like the construction of 95. Yeah. And so south of the, the Brandywine River, that divide is really stark at, at 95, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm really passionate about this effort to cap 95 and try to reheal that yeah. area of the city and reconnect those different parts of the city. It's one step in overcoming how we've, in our infrastructure, in our institutions, deepened and solidified the divides that we're talking about. I've really been grateful for your passion on that topic, specifically on the capping, but broadly on how you're sort of healing these divides. How do you frame and prioritize that specific initiative, the 95 initiative for yourself and your constituents? And more importantly to me is how do you frame that as a long-term play, right? Because this is not the kind of thing that's going to happen quickly. One of the things that, that has to happen as we're talking about this is to really highlight the impact of the construction of 95 and connect the dots. Because I think at first it sort of seems like a frivolous or superfluous issue. But I think when you look at the Cool Spring side of 95, and then you look at the West Center City side of 95, you see a pretty significant difference in the outcomes, in the demographics, in the opportunity within those different neighboring communities where the divide is very clear. I think it's important to put it in a historic context. I think there are two major events in the 50s and 60s that we are still very much feeling the negative consequences of. One was the occupation of Wilmington by the National Guard after the 1968 assassination of Martin Luther King. And the other is the construction of of I-95 that leveled communities. Yeah that displaced families, that literally just put a scar right through the city. And that's how I think of it, as a a literal scar that reflects the racial disparities, the social upheaval and and, and chaos that has plagued so much of our our city's history and so many cities' histories over the course of the last several hundred years. And then I think it's important to talk about what we're hoping comes to that spot, which is subterranean highway, right? So it's already below ground. We don't have to do the big dig like they yeah, did in Boston. In, in Boston. Yeah. It's ready made to essentially just put a ceiling over it and to take that space and to make it a community space. We're not talking about putting up, you know, office buildings there. We're talking about creating a park yeah. that literally and figuratively can reconnect communities yeah. that can bring the folks from the west side of 95 and the east side of 95 to a common place for recreation and community and art, for all of the things that that we love about Wilmington, having a microcosm of it right there in that spot over 95. The just physical covering up of that scar will have an impact on the psychology of people who often don't cross that line. And they don't cross that line consciously, but they don't cross that line. And I think that when we talk about the positive of all of that, of bringing the west side of the city into the east side of the city for joy and connection. I think we can also then talk about not just the social benefits of the capping of 95, but we can also talk about the economic benefits of capping 95. We can talk about how it's going to enliven our downtown community where there's a lot of great restaurants and arts opportunities there. And so I think it's 
contextualizing it in history, but also making clear what the positives can be moving forward. And there's incredible momentum. How do you approach communications on this or any topic or relations or engagement with your constituency who may not be aligned with your and my progressive values, you know, but you represent all of us, right? Whatever color we're aligning ourselves with, whatever beliefs we align ourselves with. How do you think about communicating so that you really connect as best as possible with those who may not be sort of thinking the same way? One of the things that I feel very strongly is that so much of life is showing up. Mm. I think in my life, particularly since coming out, there was always a lot of fear early on about going to a new space. How would these people respond to me? Yep. Even if I was going to a space that was, you know, on paper, seemingly inclusive or progressive. And certainly just walking down the street, there was fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of how people would respond to me. That early experience after coming out and having to grapple with and overcome that fear has been exceptionally helpful for me in my work because I'm not afraid to go into spaces anymore. I'm not afraid to, to go into a, into a room or a neighborhood that might think differently than me because I've had to do that time and time again just by existing. Yeah. I think showing up is such a central part of bridging that divide. It seems simple. I think people talk about it, but I don't think enough people do it. Yeah. It shows a level of respect. And then I think with showing up, it's also integral to, to actually listen. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to come to the same conclusion. It doesn't even mean that we'll meet in the middle. But I do think, as as my former boss, Jack Markell, liked to say, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. We're supposed right. to listen twice as much as we're supposed to speak. And I'll be frank, I have I sometimes struggle with that <laughs> mantra. Um, you and me both. But I think it is so important to, to give people the respect of showing up and listening to their perspective. More broadly, something that we need to do a better job of is a demonstration of a radical compassion that I think we really struggle with. People conflate the notion of radical compassion with validation of prejudice mm. or a validation of positions that you find to be not just wrong, but potentially abhorrent. And I don't think that that's necessarily true. In fact, I think it oftentimes can very much not be true. We can find compassion for very real pain Mm. across the political divide, pain that is deserving of being addressed. Right. Justice is not a transaction and it doesn't require the person receiving justice to be perfect. Mm. And so I think we, we really struggle with universalizing that principle across that divide. And I think we have to all do a better job of seeing the very real pain of folks on the other side of the divide. Because I think right now what we end up doing is we seek to, on both sides of the issues, validate and legitimize our pain by dismissing the pain of, of others. Your pain in, you know, a a white working class in in a post-industrial community, your pain is not real. My pain is real as a trans person in this urban environment. And then they say to me, your pain is not real, you cosmopolitan elite. My pain in this post-industrial community is real. The worst thing for me when I'm upset 
or when I'm in pain is for the person to tell me with good intentions or not good intentions, it's not as bad as you think. Mm-hmm. Because then I feel like I have to defend my pain. It only puts me more in my head in that pain. It only pushes me into that pain even more. The first step in healing is acknowledgement. The first step of, of healing is seeing the other person in their experience and in their pain. And only then can we begin to heal and move forward and have a constructive, productive conversation. But we're not doing that right now. And so I think showing up, listening, and then validating people's pain and experience, even if they're imperfect, especially if they're imperfect, yeah, I think that's how we move forward. And I think we need more of that. Amen. I mean, I have a poster right here. Uh, it's a Fred Rogers quote, love begins with listening, which mm. I've printed for myself to remind myself for my kids, right? And at home with my wife and in all my relations. But you're also talking about something that I feel like we, as humans have a tendency, at least in my recent memory, to look past, which is just the fundamental humanity of experience of living, which is, it's often quite hard. And we look over it because it's like, well, you're wearing this, or you have that haircut, or you're wearing these glasses or that label, or you go to this way, or you did that thing, as opposed to like, oh, I see what connects us is just our, our humanity, waking up and wondering, oh, how's today going to go? What is your experience with people's suffering and how it manifests and how do you help them move through, as you just shared with me, towards that humanity and that shared humanity? My district stretches from this area of the Highlands up through Claymont. And there's a lot of different experiences across that district. I like to say this district looks like Delaware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> politically, that might not be the case. It's, it's definitely more blue than than the state as a whole. Yeah, but demographically, it, it is fairly reflective. And the number of community meetings I've had to go to after sometimes even kids are shot and killed mm. it it's it's humbling. It's infuriating. Yeah. One of the things I've learned, and I have felt when I go to these spaces, you know, I'm not an executive. I don't manage a police department. I can't snap my fingers and provide a resource in sometimes the same way that an executive can. But obviously I I, I have a role to play in the solutions. And I think going in, oftentimes I'm asked to speak. Obviously the emotions are high. The experience is fresh. Right. The tragedy is deeply felt. And a lot of times there aren't simple, straightforward solutions. You know, the police are working on the investigation and and that's good and that's moving forward on a micro level around that specific crime. But oftentimes the solutions to addressing the more systemic problems that that facilitate and, and perpetuate the crimes in general, those aren't easy questions. Yeah. Sometimes the instinct of politicians is to go up and try to defend and yes, we should talk about what we're what we're working on, right? We should right. give people the knowledge that there is action that is that is happening or that is 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 hopefully going to happen and that we see a solution that we're seeking, right, for that community. But I also think sometimes it's just important to let people feel. And a lot of times I'll ha- I'll go up and I'll start talking about this and and then people will respond really viscerally. They'll get upset and they'll yell at me. And they might then catch themselves and say, I'm so sorry to yell at you. And, mm. and I tell them, no, it's, it's, it's okay. I have responsibility here and, and you, you should feel entitled to express your feelings and emotions to me. But even more than that, what we're talking about here is upsetting. It is yeah. infuriating. 
We owe it to the people who we've lost to feel these emotions that we're feeling right now, to have this anger. And as an elected representative of yours, I have to be prepared to take that. Because when you communicate that to me, I can then take those feelings and that experience with me to Dover or with me to the conversations. And so don't apologize for feeling that emotion. Don't apologize for even taking it out on me. And sometimes it's important for me to even just say that. Give people the permission to express themselves to me the way they feel like they need to in that moment and to let people process. People always let out a breath in that moment. Not just the person who's saying it, but the entire room you see in that moment a level of psychological healing that occurs, which won't stop the crime. It won't solve the crime. It won't address all the issues, but it is an important part for that community. And I think sometimes just sort of taking it, being uncomfortable and allowing people to process those emotions, it is such a de-escalating action and I think a healing action. And so for me, that's something that I've tried to do. I've, I've had to do it a couple of times and it's hard to take that, but I think it's important. And I think it's an important part of my job. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a natural segue to um, the politics of Mr. Rogers, which you've uh, referred to your approach to civics in previous conversations we've had and so forth. How do you think of that in, in your life and your work? I grew up watching Mr. Rogers, uh, and it, it's fitting because I didn't realize that he was a Presbyterian minister until years later, but I grew up Presbyterian. I grow, I, I am Presbyterian. I go to Westminster Presbyterian Church. And so I, I certainly grew up with him. And there are so many examples of really radical actions on his show yeah. that are put forward in a not particularly radical way, right? right? With the language of kindness or just the sort of basic interpersonal interaction. You know, you think about the scene in, in one episode of, of him washing his feet in the pool with a black, I think, law enforcement officer. Yeah, the, yeah I think so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which was really radical for that moment, but was done in such a way that it was just so nonchalant and so just reflective of the fact that these are just two people being kind to one another. And they're not even making a point of the fact that they're being kind to one another. They're just being humans to one another. Yeah, There's something so powerful when we can take what feel like abstract, ideological or philosophical conversations and bring it down to just the most basic human level. You know, and ask yourself interpersonally, if you were facing this person in your life, how would you treat them? Right. When we don't talk about it like that, when we don't allow ourselves to sit in a situation and imagine how we would interact with a human being who's black or who's trans or who's gay or who's living with a disability or living in poverty or from a different country, when we don't allow ourselves to think about that interaction interpersonally, it's so much easier to dehumanize the community or the individuals at the other end. Yeah. And so I think his way of doing that was really, I think, accessible, which is something that we underestimate as an important component of social change is the accessibility of the Mm. message, Mm -hmm. one. And two, it just helped to recenter it from an abstract, philosophical, ideological conversation to just a fundamentally human conversation about how do we treat people. Throughout my life, I have been the beneficiary of people taking what is an abstract political issue, trans rights, 
And despite their own pre-existing political or ideological positions on that or any other issue, recognizing that when I came out, it was no longer abstract. It was merely, how do I treat this person who I love or who I know or who's the child of someone I know and love? And they sided with, regardless of their ideology, the response of kindness and compassion. And so I've been the beneficiary of that neighborly love, of that neighborly capacity to see the humanity across our difference. Mm -hmm. Because that proximity is so powerful. And I think what we need to do is figure out how to universalize that across differences that exist across neighborhoods and across communities where there's not that physical proximity that existed, for instance, in my case as a trans person within the Highlands. Right. And if we universalize that, I think we'll see progress in so many ways. And that's, for me, a a really motivating goal in running for office and serving in office is that desire to take the positive experiences I have, recognizing that they are still unique, and say, how do we make those experiences a universal experience for everyone across all of the differences in our society? Mm to universalize that politics and policy of Mr. Rogers. And I think it's so important in a state like Delaware, where the thing that when you ask Delawareans what they like about our state, when you really get down to it, the thing that makes Delawareans proud to be Delawareans is that we are a state of neighbors. Yeah. That there's this sort of esoteric element of being a Delawarean that connects us, that you know, every time you meet a new person, the first thing a Delawarean is trying to do is to figure out what is their one degree of separation. Yeah. If any. yeah. We are always seeking out that connection we have with one another because we know it exists. And when you can take that small town vibe and universalize it to a state, I think there are really potentially transformational consequences of that. There seem to be those who understand that we are inextricably connected. And there seem to be those who just think they can step off the greater grid and take what they need and hold on to as much as they can, as long as they can. That's kind of how it feels to me. And I just doesn't feel like the latter approach. There's no evidence to support the latter approach is really going to get anybody that far. Altruism isn't just a byproduct of our capacity to consciously think and understand abstractly how we're connected. Altruism in non-conscious beings and organisms is actually evolutionarily fostered for the perpetuation of that organism species. And I think that's a a profound scientific reinforcement of the notion that altruism and our, our interconnectedness is not just abstractly right, but it is literally scientifically required for us to perpetuate as a people. Yeah, it's the key to our evolution, adaptation, and continued speciation on Earth. There are so many great Fred Rogerisms. One of my favorites is to look for the helpers, mm-hmm. right? It's probably his most well-known because we've been, first, he was often called on it. Susan Stanberg tells a story to me where after the Reagan attempted assassination, she called him in to be on the radio and explain to everybody, right? And this is what's so great about Fred. He's framed as a you know, advocate and educator for kids. But at the end of the day, I mean, there's not an adult or a human on earth who doesn't benefit, I think, from some of the wisdom and guidance. So I'm interested in some of your sort of less heralded 
helpers. Who are some of those helpers or role models for you? My parents are the most thoughtful people that I have ever met. They are so kind. They are selfless. They're willing to change and grow and evolve, which is just such an underrated trait in in human beings. I mean, just the inertia of not wanting to have to do anything differently is just on a personal level, such an impediment to progress. And they are never afraid to learn more. In fact, they're always eager to learn more. Certainly my husband, my late husband, Andy, who I lost to cancer, I remember a debate we once had about outing anti-LGBTQ politicians. And I initially came to the conversation saying that, yeah, you know, I think the hypocrisy that they are performing is worthy of being outed. I mean, if they are trying to make the life harder for LGBTQ people, when they themselves are actually LGBTQ, they deserve their hypocrisy to be highlighted. They are deserving of that punishment. And Andy essentially said to me two things. One, just on a personal level, how would you feel if you outed someone and they committed suicide? It's not an unrealistic, impossible outcome. Could you live with yourself? Is that a proportionate outcome? I think even more importantly, and I think even more universally as a truth, he said, we are fighting for the principle that every person should be able to live their gender identity or sexual orientation the way they deem is necessary or appropriate for them. And if you are outing someone, you are undermining that principle. Yes, they're doing bad things. Yes, they're hurting other people. But if the principle that you are fighting for is not an unbreakable first principle, then what is? Mm-hmm. Because principles only matter when you have seemingly altruistic reasons to violate them. Uh-huh. Then they're not principles. Right. You can say you're punishing this person for their hypocrisy. And is their hypocrisy worthy of being punished? Yes. Punish them by defeating them at the ballot box. Punish them by winning the argument. Punish them by making progress. Punish them hmm. by making their position untenable. But to punish them by violating the very principle that you're fighting for demonstrates the hollowness of your fight and the hollowness of your principle. Mm. And I think for me, that was a really great lesson. It was a lesson that demonstrated Andy's level of humanity and compassion, but it reinforced even beyond that, that a lot of times people who fight for good things aren't necessarily nice or kind people themselves. Right. And that we have a responsibility to not just fight for kindness abstractly and on a macro level, but we have a responsibility to live the values that we're fighting for in our own lives. And Andy did that every single day. And I think he instilled in me a a desire to at least try to live up to that. That doesn't mean that I'm always perfect and it doesn't mean that I don't have bad days, but I think it's so important for us to live the values that we're fighting for broadly in our own lives. Yeah, as I often remind my daughters, it's directional, right? So that doesn't mean you're not going to take a misstep or get off course. It just means that you're headed in the direction of right, good, and just. And we expect mistake because as I keep telling them, I don't learn much from my successes personally. I want to talk about secrets a little bit. We all have them. And this is why I'm so interested in this idea of living out of integrity with yourself, which is often mind, body, spirit sort of stuff. And 
So you wrote, it was only after my deep experience of the year was able to come to terms with what had been my deepest secret. And I'm just interested in how that secret manifested in you psychologically, spiritually, physically, and how palpable the effect was. And I'm interested because I think this is the kind of thing that empowers other people because you model it to let go of theirs. I could use a little bit of that bromide and I imagine some of our listeners could, ergo my inquiry. The recognition of this holding in of a secret is is something that everyone can sort of relate to and understand. And I think about it, you know, whether it's a secret or a lot of times I'll use the term insecurity. It might not be something that that people recognize that they're keeping secret, but they are keeping it hidden because they are insecure about it. I really do think that so many of our problems as a society are byproducts of the fact that we force people to keep so much inside, whether that's their emotions and feelings or whether it's their secrets and insecurities. There's so much that we say, bury it, hide it. Yeah, uh, really almost any form of otherness, right? It's interesting. If you're not a part of some norm or some community standard, whatever that is, which is most likely not a realistic one anyway, or a thoughtful one, then we feel out of sync in ways that I don't think a lot of us have language for. I'm really interested in it because I just have found it so powerful in my own life. I just think it'd be so empowering to others. That feeling of that secret, it became such an all-encompassing experience that it was essentially debilitating. Yeah. I thought about my gender identity every single waking hour of every single day. And at the best moments, it felt like that, a constant feeling of homesickness. It Mm. felt like that pit in my stomach that just wouldn't go away. At its worst, It was so all-consuming that I literally just could not think of anything else. It wasn't just a pain that I could sort of push aside. It became all-consuming, where I literally had to reimagine my life Mm. as I was living it, as if I were out. And then I remember after I came out, you know, people would say to me, oh, I hope you're happy now. This is so, so great. Are you happy? Are you happy? And yeah, there was a, at the the start, maybe sort of a euphoria of finally being out and living authentically and all of that. But I think even more deeply, it wasn't that I felt happy. I didn't come out and transition to be happy. Yeah. I literally came out in order to free my mind of a completely overpowering weight Mm. and cloud that got in the way of me feeling any emotion other than exhaustion and dread. Mm. And as every day passed, that dread became greater because what I was dreading was the fact that I knew that if I didn't come out in those final moments of my life, I would have felt like I wasted it. Yeah. And that every day that went by was me wasting my life. I know I'm lucky. And this isn't true for everyone in every circumstance, but for the most part, our fears are often worse than what their actual reality will be. Mm. I went through, in order to come out, I think an experience of grief because I had to grieve a future. I had to grieve any of the expectations and hopes that I had, not just professionally, but personally. And it was only in that final stage of grief, acceptance of the loss of a future, that I was actually able to accept myself. Mm. But then I think what, what's so wonderful 
is that in coming out, not only did I finally free my mind, but I saw one that as understandable as my fears were, many of them were unfounded. Mm-hmm. Two, I would have this incredible opportunity because of who I am, because I chose the only path that was truly in front of me, the path of, of living authentically, that I would then have life experiences that were a byproduct of that, that would reinforce and reinstill my faith in people, that would deepen my relationships with family and friends, that would allow me to have a front row seat to progress and change and experience that is truly historic, that there would be so many blessings that would come from this kind of life journey that would enrich my life and make me better as a person. It connected me to other people who I wouldn't have otherwise met, including my husband, Andy. Mm -hmm. And I think when you take all of those things together, it, it, it does reinforce that when we claim what we think is an insecurity or a secret or something that we should hide. Yeah. And we live it out loud. Not only are we ensuring that we won't have that regret at the end of our life, but that in many ways, the experiences that come from it will make our lives beyond just that identity that much better, that much more exciting, that much more joyful, that those things can be our superpowers. It is my hope that we not only build a world where people can live out loud and and overcome those secrets and those insecurities for themselves, but that it has that ripple effect that doesn't just create better individual lives, but I believe creates better, more compassionate societies as a whole. You view yourself as sort of relentlessly optimistic. And I'm a fairly optimistic dude. But what about everybody who's just so goddamn scared, which I feel like it's a lot of fear, right? It's if I don't buy this, I won't be that. If I don't um, protect this, I'll lose that. How do you hold on to that? That's the ultimate question for all of us. And I am by no means naive. I understand and very much feel all of the reasons that people can and do feel pessimistic or or negative about the present and the future. We have real significant challenges. We have real significant divides. And the things that I believe and the, 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 the policies I want to put forward and the philosophies I've articulated here that I think might help if we operationalize them, they might not fix everything, right? And this may be the moment that the challenges we face bring us down. I could be wrong. But one, what is the alternative? Totally, right? totally. Do we just relent? Throw up our hands? Yeah. And say, <laughs> okay, there's nothing that we can do. Everything's hopeless. I heard someone say optimism is actually fickle because optimism can turn to pessimism pretty pretty easily based on circumstances, based on evidence. What is more important is unceasing hopefulness. Mm. And so I, I, I might amend my statement that I'm unceasingly hopeful. There are instances where I'm less optimistic than I might have been the day before. I am, I think, un- unceasingly hopeful. And that derives from a, a, an at least base level of unceasing optimism that is a byproduct of not only my lived experience, not only the things that I've seen in my own life, because I do recognize that I am lucky, but I think also just as someone who tries to be a student of history, mm-hmm. I find a lot of hope in the history books, not just because 
to me, each chapter is the story of people conquering seemingly insurmountable challenges. But I think actually I find even more hope when I try to take those stories and not think about them in their totality from start to finish, but to take myself and to put myself not at the end of that battle or that fight, but in the thick of it, Mm. in the moments where the challenges were the most seemingly insurmountable in the moments where there wasn't a light at the end of the tunnel Mm -hmm. in the moments pre civil war, that people who were enslaved in America could still gather around campfires to sing freedom songs and hold out hope for freedom. If people in the depths of the great depression standing in bread lines could continue to get up and continue to fight for change. If service members on the front lines of World War II during D-Day can withstand and come through the, the bullets of a seemingly impossible advance. If John Lewis getting beaten and bloodied on the Edmund Pettus Bridge can continue to walk across that bridge. If these people who had every reason to give up, every reason to feel hopeless and pessimistic about the capacity for us to overcome those challenges and to come out better than before, if they didn't give up in spite of all of that, if they were still able, without the light at the end of the tunnel visible, continue to move forward and actually find that solution, then I think if history is any indication, this is not the end, but just another one of those moments. That if we do persist, if we do keep up a level of hopefulness, even in the face of evidence that suggests that the most realistic person should be pessimistic, should give up hope, if we merely continue to persist, then I think once again, we will be a generation that finds that light at the end of the tunnel, that creates that progress, that overcomes that challenge, just as previous generations have before us. More than once, I've thanked Sarah for being a role model for my daughters. But, and I think she knows this, I'm really thanking Sarah for being a role model for me. See, I've spent my life trying to calibrate True North and march in that direction. I've tried to live my values, to show up and listen. But for all that I've shared in dozens of songs, countless blog posts, even a movie, I have breasted some cards. The moon, the tower, the nine of swords. Sometimes fear, anxiety, or sadness overwhelm me and I play small and quiet. Sarah reminds, no, she challenges me to live out loud. Not amplifiers or distortion pedals, not gold lame or lime green. Authenticity, vulnerability, integrity. When we allow people to take that insecurity, fear, or secret and to live it authentically, she says, it gives permission for people with totally different secrets and insecurities to live openly and authentically themselves. When we own and share our most potent insecurities or our deepest secrets, when we reveal our very humanity, the things that move us, inspire us, scare us, or worry us, we feel less alone and more connected, and we light the way for one another. As Fred Rogers told us, the greatest gift you'll ever give is your honest self. In being her authentic self, 
Sarah gives me the courage to do the same. Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Lifelong friends.